Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we feature excerpts from a November 2022 interview between USA Today's Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page and fellow biographer and bio member John, better known as Jack, Farrell. With Page, Farrell talked about his latest book, Ted Kennedy, A Life, published by Penguin Press in October of last year. It's an insightful examination of the former long-term senator and Kennedy family icon. This in-person event was sponsored and recorded by the Manhattan-based New York Historical Society's Public Programs Department and presented today with the Society's permission. Enjoy. It's such a delight to be back here at the New York Historical Society. These are wonderful programs. It's really been my privilege to participate in them. Uh, Jack and I were talking backstage. We have known each other now for 30 years. And before we start with the conversation, just one scoop about Jack Farrell's next book. I ran into Jack and his wife in a diner uh, near our hotel this afternoon. And on a paper napkin, they had mapped out Jack's next book. And I feel like I was there at the creation. I have no idea what the book is about, but it looked it looked extremely organized. So, Jack, it's... It's great to be here with you. And that napkin is going to be donated to the delicatessen exhibit <laughs> here at the New York Historical Society. Yeah. I do want to urge all of you to write down a question. I actually always think the questions from the audience are they're often the best part of these evenings. So please do feel free to write a question. If you, if you have one for Jack or, or something about Ted Kennedy or the Kennedy family, the topic of this wonderful book. I mean, it's sweeping. It's meticulously researched. It is beautifully written. Congratulations, Jack. Thank you. And here's the single most remarkable thing about your book. You took a topic that has been explored in one gazillion books already. Uh, It's reminded me of your Richard Nixon book in that you took somebody who had been thoroughly explored and still managed to find out things we didn't know about him. But when you started, were you sure that you would be able to find something new to say, to learn about Ted Kennedy? Yes and no. Um, the Nixon book had a, had a really nice, big New York Times front page scoop in it. And I knew I was never going to be able to match that again. And so my expectations were low, and I was beating myself on my back because I just knew I was not going to do that again. But Ted Kennedy was somebody I knew. Almost immediately, I discovered that the actual story of the character, the actual story of the man, the biography, was going to be a different story than I had read before, or even had in my mind as a concept of who Ted Kennedy was, because I I knew him as powerful senator, stem-winding speaker, um, funny Irish guy, and charismatic Kennedy, and never, ever thought that I would find this really tragic, sorrowful side that came to take over the book. It gave the book 
before publication to Robert Shrum, who, who you know was his um, press secretary and speechwriter. And I said, well, what did you think of it? And he said, I worked with the guy for 20 years. He was my close friend, and I never knew how sorrowful his life was until I read your book. So that was the thing that really jumped out at me, sort of the whole concept of who was the person, what was the inner man like, because he was so successful, like a, like a movie star, presenting the happy-go-lucky other side of him. What was the source of Ted Kennedy's sorrow? Oh, boy, you got half an hour? <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so just wipe your mind clean for a second and imagine that you had three children and all of them had cancer before early middle age. Or wipe your mind clear again and imagine that you were in a plane crash and you broke your back and you couldn't walk for six months uh, you were strapped into a gurney-type thing, and it was questionable whether or not you would ever walk again. And in that plane crash, the pilot and one of your best friends died. Or, one more time, step away. Imagine that one older sister dies in an airplane crash, an older brother dies in World War II on a heroic mission, and another older sister is uh, inalterably injured in, in a surgical accident having brain surgery. Any of those things would have been a defining event in yours and mine's life. And yet, for Ted Kennedy, they're parenthetical compared to Bobby and John and JFK Jr. and all the other tragic... I mean, it's, it's, if Shakespeare had written this play, you would say, ha, ah, you know, it's too unbelievable. It goes, this is like Titus Andronicus. It just goes on too much. But that's what his life was like. It was one sorrow after another. And I once wrote a story for the Boston Globe comparing him to a white shark who always had to keep swimming because if sharks stop swimming, then they drown. And I said he would drown in an ocean of sorrow. And he sent me back a little note, and at the end of the note, he, he drew a little shark and said, signed, Ted the Shark. So he knew this about himself. He knew that he was just driven and driven, driven to work hard, work hard, work hard, it's Friday afternoon, play hard, play hard, play hard. Monday morning, work hard, work hard, and just never come to grips with all that stuff that was inside of him. Did he ever come to grips with it? I don't think he ever did. I think that uh, there were parts of him that got a little bit more relaxed with himself after his second marriage. I think that Vicki Kennedy, who was his second wife, did a really good job in centering him, was the word that his members of his family used. You know, you describe these crushing tragedies in his life. In, a, in, in one part of, in your book, you write about a day in which he was first at the hospital at Georgetown University Hospital, uh, where his 12-year-old son was having his leg amputated because of cancer. And then at 11, the operation was over. He went over to Holy Trinity Church to walk his niece, Kathleen, down the wedding aisle because, of course, her father, his brother, had been assassinated and wasn't there to do it. If these episodes are the source of his sorrow, what was the source of his strength to not be crushed by them? Well, as a kid, he really felt insufficient in that family. I mean, it was an amazing family. You've all seen the movies and uh, specials, uh, PBS specials on television. Um, John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Eunice uh, invents the... Uh, 
Special, Special Olympics. Olympics. Thank you very much. But you're the, uh, you're the author. <laughs> I know I'm the author. I should know this stuff. Uh, amazing family. Father is you know first Irish American Catholic ambassador to Great Britain. So and Ted is the last of nine children. His mother by this time is like totally turned off from child raising, and so he has this amazing hero worship of all these glittering people in the family and feels this immense duty that he can't let them down. And one of the things I found in doing the research for the book was that right after Chappaquiddick, he went back to the family compound and he talked to his sister, Jean. And the thing that she recorded afterwards was that he just kept saying, oh my God, I've let down Jack and Bob. I've let down Jack and Bob. I've let down the family. Not even that I killed this poor woman, Mary Jo Kopechny, or not that my career is over, but everything to him was family and duty and legacy. Chappaquiddick had such long um, tales. It had such long strings afterwards, both for him in his career, for his willingness or ability to investigate Watergate or to hold some tough hearings on Supreme Court nominees. You have some actual revelations in your book, some new information about Chappaquiddick and how he responded to it. Some people have speculated that he had a self-destructive streak for whatever reason, and that Chappaquiddick reflected part of that. Do you think that's true? I do. One, I mean, it's, it's impossible to prove, but you're asking a biographer for a theory. Um, I didn't argue it strenuously. I let other people argue it for me, people who knew him, like columnist Anthony Lewis or Ellen Goodman or his best friend John Tunney. And the closer he got to the White House, the more he self-destructed. And the further away he retreated from the White House, the better he performed until at the end when he takes himself out of the presidential race, then all of a sudden you get the lion of the Senate and he has this amazing record of 20 or 30 years in the Senate, reaching across the aisle, joining with Republican uh, senators in a way unimaginable today and passing all this significant legislation. In the most gripping moment, I think, is he's gonna run against Jimmy Carter and some of the people in this room may actually remember watching this on television. And Roger Mudd, the CBS correspondent, goes to interview him and asks him the biggest ballpark questions like, you know, what's the status of your marriage, Senator? Or why do you want to be president? And it's difficult to go back and watch the film without thinking that it's a satire, that it's, that it's Saturday Night Live and it's, a, it's somebody impersonating him because he's like, well, I, uh, uh, well, um, I, uh, uh. And, it's not uh, really a gotcha question. No, why do you want to be president? Yeah. And as he was watching that, Senator Warren Rudman of New Hampshire immediately said he doesn't want it. He's trying to self-destruct. He's trying to, to end it. He doesn't feel that he is up to the job and uh, up to his, especially the legacy of his brothers. Legacy is a big, big word in his life. And one, I think it was one of his sisters, was it Jean, who said he believed that if he was ever president, he'd be assassinated himself. He did, yeah. And there were times I've talked to aides where they said that they were crossing uh, from the Capitol to uh, the Senate office buildings and they stood there on the corner and all of a sudden there'd be a backfire or a 21-gun salute or something like that and they would look around for him and he would duck and, and fall into the ground. You know, John Hinckley tailed him around the U.S. Capitol for three days and deciding that he didn't have the opportunity to kill Ted Kennedy then went and shot Ronald Reagan. So it was, it was a very, very real threat. What a terrible burden that must have been for him to carry. And he had, at that point, I think, oh, 16 children and nephews and nieces that he had to be sort of a surrogate father to. Yeah. He turned out to be very well designed for the U.S. Senate. Would he have been a good president? 
I think he would have been a good president simply because of that drive he had. And he also had one thing which we never saw, even as reporters covering him, which was practice and rehearsal. He had a way of making everything look like it was coming off the top of his head. It was spontaneous. But actually, every moment, every crucial moment in his career, with the exception of Roger Mudd, was spent in rehearsal, 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 practice, 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 until that confidence level was, was built up to a point where he could perform. And in the White House, you have that cocoon around you that allows you to do that kind of practice and rehearsal. And he had great drive and determination. He had great inner idealism and a good heart. And the Kennedys had an ability to attract really smart people to work for them. So I think you put all those things together, and I think he would have been a good president. And again, a crisis in the presidency would not have been the same as a crisis in his family. If he came across his own Cuban Missile Crisis, he would not have reacted as he did in Chappaquiddick by saying, um, oh my God, I'm going to tarnish the memory of Jack and Robert. He would have said, okay, now, how would Jack have handled this? How would Robert have handled this? And talked to his advisors. I'm not sure that he ever would have been that gifted, creative statesman that JFK was, but I think he would have been perfectly capable. You talked about working hard and partying hard, and that is a kind way of putting some of uh, Ted Kennedy's personal behavior. I don't know how much reflects changing mores today, where things that were acceptable or accepted a couple decades ago are unacceptable now. Talk about kind of that personal side, the kind of repeated scandals, some of which got some attention and some of which did not. Well, I mean, obviously Chappaquiddick just looms so high because it cost a young woman her life. But there were many incidents that if they happened to a U.S. senator today, he would be resigning tomorrow. Um, There was one incident in a restaurant in Washington, D.C., where he and Chris Dodd had too much to drink, and they rubbed themselves lewdly against the waitress. And if that had ever gotten into the Washington Post the next day, um, he quite possibly could have been prosecuted for sexual harassment or assault. So they were, yes, they were different times. This was the end of the Senate as the Rich Boys Club. And uh, he had a, uh, a recklessness that all Kennedys have. They always push it too hard. They always drive too fast. And he also had a, a cockiness that he could get away with anything because dad had always been there with a bailout when they were kids. And they had always imagined to skip away from things. And uh, interestingly enough, the one that finally got him was the Palm Beach affair, which was he wakes his nephew and his son up at midnight on Good Friday and says, let's go drinking. And they go down to a pickup bar, and the two boys bring women home to the compound, and one of them is accused with rape. Now, Ted had, was not accused of anything in that, but it was a very sordid story. William Kennedy Smith was found not guilty, but it was a sordid night anyway. And for the first time, his uh, re-election in Massachusetts was in doubt. And there was this bright young guy named Mitt Romney who ran against him. And uh, at Labor Day, Romney was ahead. And old friends like the Boston Globe were saying, you know, we always stuck by him because the private was private and, and the public was public. But in the midst of the Palm Beach crisis, you have this Supreme Court confirmation hearing of Clarence Thomas. And Clarence Thomas is accused by Anita Hill of sexual harassment. And Ted Kennedy's on the Judiciary Committee sitting right next to Joe Biden, the chairman. And Ted might as well have had a bag over his head for three days of the hearing. Because he was felt Because he was compromised. He was compromised. And I've had the authors of both main books on the Thomas Hill affair 
tell me that if Ted Kennedy, who had helped stop Robert Bork three years earlier, had been there that summer, Clarence Thomas would not be on the Supreme Court now. So let's talk about the line of the Senate. You describe him in your book as one of the greatest U.S. senators ever, which is pretty high praise. We've had some pretty impressive senators make the case that he is one of the, Ted Kennedy was one of the greatest U.S. senators ever. Okay, so in 1965, at the age of 33, uh, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, James Eastland of Mississippi, decides that he wants nothing to do with this immigration bill. But you Kennedys up there in Massachusetts, who are always doing things for the Italians, um, I'm going to give it to you, boy, and you can run the hearings. And so Ted Kennedy runs the hearings and pushes through this immigration bill, the 1965 immigration bill. And basically what it does is it says no longer will the white people from northern Europe get first almost exclusive shot into the United States of America. Now people from Africa, Central and South America, and Asia will. And it has totally changed the complexion of America. And Ted Kennedy was the guy who held the hearings and pushed that bill at the age of 33. Later on, uh, after Watergate, he um, joins with uh, the Republican leader, Hugh Scott, and they pass this campaign finance bill. Now, there's the House representatives, and there's the presidency, who's got to sign the bills, and then there's the Senate, and you have a lot of work you have to do with many people and big egos in the Senate. So when you say that they passed the bill, it wasn't just those two, but they, they organized and led the process of a bill that the New York Times on the next day's front page said, this bill will end the influence of special interest <laughs> money in America forever. That has totally worked out. <laughs> But it was a big bill, uh, nonetheless. Um, in 1981, Ronald Reagan comes into office. And Ted Kennedy helps organize the resistance to the Reagan revolution on the issue of voting rights. And together with Robert Dole, then the ma uh, minority leader, he pressures Reagan into accepting a 25-year extension of a tougher Voting Rights Act. In uh, the Nixon administration, he joins with Richard Nixon to pass the war on cancer. And if you'll notice, there's this thread running through all this, which is that there's always a Republican. He identifies very early in his career that if he gets somebody on the other side, whether it's Gerald Ford, Richard Nixon, both Bushes, Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, Howard Baker, John McCain, Alan Simpson, and especially Orrin Hatch of Utah, that that Republican will give them conservative cover and Teddy will give them liberal cover and you can do amazingly great things together. And I think that there's a chapter that I wrote about Hatch and Kennedy taking on Jesse Helms over AIDS with Bob Dole's help at a time when the Reagan administration and the rest of Congress did not want to touch this issue because of who the, uh, uh, the victims were, gay people, intravenous drug users, and Haitian immigrants. And they took on Jesse Helms, who was trying to embarrass the other members in the Senate and successfully at the beginning did so into keeping them from voting for any kind of bill to fight AIDS that did not have a clause in there that said that it is the policy of the United States of America that sex should only be had by married couples exclusively <laughs> with each other. And most of the senators did so at, at the expense of all these groups that were suffering from AIDS. But Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch formed this alliance, as they would do on child health care programs, tobacco bills, but especially on AIDS. And when Helms stood up, 
to ambush them. Orrin Hatch stood up, and you should go on C-SPAN and look it up and just watch Orrin Hatch take Jesse Helms apart while Ted Kennedy stands there grinning and nodding. And Orrin Hatch gives this wonderful speech about, you know, uh, let he who is without sin cast the, the first stone. And they pass, finally, a massive AIDS treatment and uh, patient's rights bill. There could not have been an otter couple than no. Ted Kennedy <laughs> and Orrin Hatch. Can I jump in? Yes. There's a great story of Ted and Chris Dodd coming into a late session of the Senate feeling no pain, and they run into Orrin Hatch, and Ted says he has a favor from once Orrin, and Orrin says, well, okay, but, uh, you know, I've got the Mormon bishops meeting in Boston at Faneuil Hall, and it would be very nice if you were to uh, stop by and address them, Ted. Oh, sure, sure, Orrin, no problem, no problem. And so the next day they're standing on the Senate floor, and a very hungover Ted Kennedy comes over to Orrin Hatch and says, so, Orrin, uh, the Mormon bishops, uh, what else did I promise last night? <laughs> You know, it's one of the threads, as you mentioned, is just his ability to forge bipartisan alliances on big controversial issues. This seems to be a skill that we have largely lost in our government. Could Ted Kennedy be doing that today? No, and I think, well, not not at the level that he did. Uh, And he saw this in his last big fight, which was for immigration reform. And he helped put together a coalition that had Senator Barack Obama, Senator Lindsey Graham, Senator John McCain, Senator John Kyle of of Arizona, a conservative, and they assembled this immigration bill, and the idea was that we will stand in in this mighty center, Um, we will close the border, we will have a work program for future immigrants, and of the immigrants who are here now, we'll have, we can't call it amnesty, but it, it will be an amnesty program, especially for the Dreamer kids. And Lindsey Graham, on the day it passes the Senate for the first time, stands at the microphone and says, if this doesn't go through with this coalition, oh yeah, and George W. Bush was the president and he was supporting them as well. But they went home for a Memorial Day, I think it was recess, it might have been a Fourth of July recess, and the Rush Limbaugh's of the world were just coming into their power. And they started pounding away uh, Lou Dobbs on, I think at that point he was on CNN, pounding away on this scandalous immigration bill that was going to open your borders and fill the country with, they didn't say it that way, but what they meant was dark-skinned people with accents. And the Republican base got so angry and outraged that they pressured the Republican centrists to back away. And meanwhile, the unions were not happy at all about the work provisions of having all these immigrants coming over or staying and what that would do to um, union wages. And so they began to slip away on the left. And even with that incredible lineup, uh, McCain, Bush, Obama, Lindsey Graham, Ted Kennedy, they lost that bill. And that was the moment, I think, when Ted Kennedy realized that the Senate was no longer the Senate that he loved. I mean, there was always one or two people like Jesse Helms, but now there were 30 of them. You know, one of his greatest achievements was on health care, a victory that he delivered from the grave. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, he had started out with health care with Richard Nixon, and together they helped rewrite the HMO laws. Not rewrite, but write the HMO laws, the first HMO laws. And as time went on, he was always pushing for a grand bargain along the lines of Medicare for all. And uh, at the end of Nixon's term in office in the spring of 1974, Nixon was desperate for something to point to. 
to claim that he was still a functioning president, uh, there was still value in keeping Nixon in the White House, and he seized on health care. And he put together a bill that looks just like the Affordable Care Act. And uh, he brought it to Ted Kennedy, and Ted Kennedy said, no, the unions won't let me do this. We're going to push ahead for Medicare for all. And uh, Nixon sweetened it and gave a huge government subsidy so that if you couldn't afford to buy insurance, then uh, the government would help you out. And Kennedy said, okay, so this is something I think we need to go with. And he went to Wilbur Mills, who was his ally in the House Ways and Means Committee. And Wilbur Mills said, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm going to uh, push this bill through, but we can't have funding in a, ma- in a dedicated tax. And Ted Kennedy said, no, it's got to be written in there that there's going to be revenue, because if there's not revenue, this won't happen. And the Nixon administration wouldn't go for a new tax rate, because that would go against the whole theory of why they were backing health reform at that time. And Ted Kennedy backed away, and uh, he later said in interviews that this was the single greatest tactical error that he had ever made in his career because Wilbur Mills drove off a bridge in Washington in the company of a young stripper named Fanny Fox, the Argentina firecracker, um, and then wandered drunkenly out on stage in a vaudeville show in in Boston. And that was the end of, of that bill. Nixon was, of course, thrown out of office. And it was another 20 years before Ted Kennedy could bring that format, the Affordable Care Act, to Congress and give it to President Obama. And then by this time, he was dying. He was uh, looking like a, a feeble, dying man. But before one session at the East Room of the White House, as they were waiting in an anteroom to go on, he grabbed Obama's elbow and said, Mr. President, this is the time. You have to seize the moment. Remember, you're Julius Caesar. Uh, there's a tide in the affairs of men, and this is the time. And then he died. Before he died, it passed his committee. Uh, so he saw that happen. And then it ran into an amazing series of catastrophes, including the fact that the Democrats lost his seat in Massachusetts and therefore were vulnerable to a, uh, to a filibuster. But before he died, he wrote this letter to Obama. And he said, this has been the cause of my life. Now is the time. Stick with it. I know you can get it done. And after he died, Vicky gave that letter to President Obama. Obama read it, uh, read it out loud to the nation in a joint session of Congress. And when the Affordable Care Act was passed the following spring through the great courage of Nancy Pelosi, Obama signed the act. They had a party at the White House. And Obama went upstairs to to the residence. And he was playing with with his dog. And he said, "I, I thought of two people. I thought of my mom, who had died of breast cancer. And I thought of Ted Kennedy. So when I was doing the Pelosi book, I was told by a close Kennedy aide that he wrote this letter knowing it would be delivered after his death, but had copies delivered to people other than Obama, including Nancy Pelosi, so that if Obama did not read the letter to the nation, did not heed the lesson, that there would be another way for this letter to come into public view, which turned out not to be necessary. An interesting thing about that is that he got the Affordable Care Act from Mitt Romney in Massachusetts, and he helped Romney push that through the Massachusetts legislature as a model for the country. And he and Romney had had this great debate in Faneuil Hall, and uh, Kennedy had won it, had had reversed the trend and put him on the path to victory. And so they had a signing for the Massachusetts Affordable Care Act in Faneuil Hall, and Romney very graciously stood up there and and said, I I feel like a Titanic coming back and revisiting the iceberg. (laughs) So you spend, how long did you work on this book? Six years. And 
you did a lot of research in archives and at presidential libraries. Tell me about an aha moment, a time when you either did an interview or turned over a piece of paper in an archive and you just had a chill go up your spine because you knew you had found something really special. Well, you know, I keep these notebooks in which I write down my progress and it's on page three of the first notebook. So it was very early. I went to the New York Public Library to look through the unpublished pages of Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s diary. The diary itself is like 9,000 pages, and they've only published 500 of them. But he was, A, a professional historian. He was incredibly close to the Kennedy family, and he kept this amazing diary. It's a, it's a, it's a huge historic resource and that not a lot of people have used because they only use the book. And so following the good graces of uh, Mr. Robert Caro, um, the instructions of Mr. Robert Caro to turn every page, I went to the Schlesinger Diary and turned every page. And it's chock full of wonderful stuff, including the fact that the week after Chappaquiddick, Arthur Schlesinger had gone to Hyannisport and had talked to Ted, had talked to Gene and Steve Smith, and had gotten this first um, fill on what actually had happened. Now. All, every investigative journalist or a book writer or biographer will tell you all along that it's no great surprise that Ted Kennedy tried to cover up the accident at Chappaquiddick. But to have it come out of his mouth to his sister Jean and through her to Arthur Schlesinger and end up in the diary, I knew I had, you know, this was the closest thing to a confession you're ever going to get. And so the, the bad part about having one that's early in the process is that you spend many sleepless nights from that point on going, oh, my God, somebody else is going to go to the <laughs> Schlesinger papers and I'm going to get scooped. But uh, fortunately, nobody did. Yeah, it, it was your scoop. You know, there's another scoop in your book uh, that also has kind of a current tone to it because it involves the confirmation hearings for Justice Alito, who, of course, has written the decision overturning Roe v. Wade. This is a topic, Roe v. Wade, that Kennedy discussed with him privately. And... You have an account about what he said. How did you get that account? I had an old friend, Adam Clymer, who had written a biography of Ted Kennedy back in the 1990s. Adam has since passed away, but one of the first things I did is I took him to lunch and said, I'm not going to do this because I'll be stepping on your toes invariably if you tell me not to do it. And he came back within 24 hours and said, go ahead and do it. And then he gave me a list of all sources and phone numbers and emails that he had and he gave me this bit of advice, and he said, there's a diary. Go for the diary. I was not able to get it, but maybe you can get it now that Ted has passed away. And so I went to the Kennedy family and was turned down flatly, and that was a disappointment. They didn't want to cooperate in any way at the beginning, especially in, in something as time-consuming as going through 9,000 pages of Ted Kennedy's diary and weeding out what they didn't want the public to, to see immediately. So I had to try to get it elsewhere. When I went, started doing my research, I was always looking for any sign of a, of a diary, and I found them. I found them in the speech writing files, because very often what Ted would do is that he would, um, he would go to Vietnam, and on the plane on the way back from Vietnam, he would speak into a, a tape recorder. And that tape was then transcribed by an aide, and it was sent to the bowels of the J.F. Kennedy Library in, in Massachusetts for storage. But if he was going to give a speech about Vietnam or he was going to talk in an oral history about Vietnam or somebody was going to interview him about, you or I were going to go, come and interview him about Vietnam, an aide would be sent there. They would get the notes from his Vietnam trip 
and they would be brought to Washington, and sometimes they were not sent back to the JFK library. As, as sometimes happens, speechwriters and other people made copies of them and put them in their own files. And so salt and peppered throughout the files of his staff are glimpses of his diary. Um, when they finally come out, it'll be an amazing book because he had such a, a rich and amazing life. Will they finally come out? It's up to the Kennedys. So what did Alito tell Kennedy when he was up for confirmation? Both Chief Justice Roberts and Alito came by that year and said, we are great respecters of precedents. And we can't tell you exactly how we're going to vote on Roe v. Wade, but nudge, nudge, wink, wink, we believe in our constitutional duties, and we believe that proper judicial respect must be given to major decisions, nod, nod, wink, wink, from, from the past. So as close as they could get, they attempted to assure him and other U.S. senators that at least a total attack on Roe v. Wade would not happen on their watch. And uh, it, they misled members of the Senate about uh, how important precedent actually was, because if you read the Alito decision, he tears about Roe v. Wade. Wrongly decided from the start. And the argument, yeah. Yes. yeah. yeah. Um, did Kennedy believe him? No, I don't think that, that he did. I think that after he talks about the discussion he had with each of these justices, at the end he sort of says, you know, I don't think I made that much progress. They're smart guys. They're clever guys. They didn't really show me any ankle. And therefore I can't trust putting them on the Supreme Court. So let's ask some of the questions from you in the audience, and thank you for, for sending these up. Here's a first one. Have you received a response to the book from any members of the Kennedy family? Not directly. After a very long silence, the book came out, and Vicki, who's now the ambassador to Austria, sent me an email and said, I'm looking forward to, to reading it. Um, she had seen the Alito thing in the New York Times and said something along the lines about that uh, day because she was there that day. And Ted Kennedy Jr., who had never spoken to me for the book, in contrast to his brother Patrick, wrote or said something on social media citing that article approvingly and saying, you know, my dad was very suspicious that this was happening, and yes, this is the way he felt. So, but no, has anybody called me up and either chewed my ear off and said you got it wrong or you were too mean on him? or called me up and said, you got it right, that was my dad, no. It must be hard to be in a family that's unendingly the subject of such scrutiny. That must be a, a tough thing to grow up with. I want to touch back on, on just one other thing you mentioned, which was that you went and talked to Adam Clymer, yeah. who was a, a reporter I also knew. He yeah. worked at the Baltimore Sun with my husband and then worked at the New York Times. He was a kind of a prickly guy. And the idea that he would do all this cooperation with you I find surprising and not Adam Clymer-like. Well, and I had to buy him a lot of lunches. It, but, but it was a very generous, it's a very generous, it's a big help to you. And he had written yeah. this big book on Kennedy. I'm sure he didn't want it to be supplanted. Yeah. Why do you think he helped you out? He was a curmudgeon, to be sure. Yes, even uh, as a very young man. As a child, he was probably. Yeah. <laughs> but he had, he had a soft and a generous side. And um, he lost a daughter to a drunk driver at the University of Vermont. I don't know whether that was what softened him or, or whether it just brought out that side of him. But, um, and maybe you've, you've talked to some of the young uh, women reporters in Washington at the Times 
um, always said that um, he was a, a sweetheart to them. He was he was helpful. He was, you know, that the times can be a very at that time could be a very testosterone-rich environment, and uh, people like my our friend Robin Toner dearly loved him. So there must have, there must have been another side to Adam. Yeah, well, there must have been. And also, tell me if you think this is true. My experience has been that once you do a book, and maybe this is obvious to people in academia, but you're invested in the idea that we should all learn more about the big things that happened in our life and our history. And so you're in favor of other people who are going to like get that record right. Yeah, I think that journalism is competitive. Book writing is competitive. But at a certain point, the competition is over. And I've always compared my work to those summer days when you're at the cottage at the beach and it's raining. (laughs) And so you dump a jigsaw puzzle out on the kitchen table and you start, as everybody walks by, they put a few pieces of the puzzle in. And my little thing on Nixon, my little things on Ted Kennedy, they're little tiny pieces of this big mosaic. And if you don't see yourself as part of something bigger, then why do it? Here's another question from the audience. Can you describe the family dynamics and relationships between the Kennedy brothers? And then there's a second question. Who had the biggest impact on the lives of Americans? I think that in ways that are hard to look at, I mean, you can look at Ted Kennedy's life and you can look at all these bills that I talked about, right? And you can look at Robert Kennedy's time in opposing the war in Vietnam and uh, forcing LBJ out of office. But in terms of making America think of itself at its best, I don't think that anybody compares to John Kennedy. And I, I think both of his brothers would would say the same thing. He, he came at a time when it's hard for us to think about at the end of the Eisenhower years were a very stale time. And he challenged us to be better. It's not something that you see politicians do, certainly in this hour. And not a lot. You know, maybe Reagan did it. Reagan had that sort of cadences that, that JFK did about we're Americans and this is why we do big things. But I think that, that his impact, and especially right at the end of his brief term in office, uh, his embrace of the civil rights movement, and putting the presidential imprimatur on civil rights with that speech that he gave, some of which was impromptu, uh, made up as he spoke to the nation live, was uh, something that will live in history for a long time. And it's a reason, I think, why when there are public opinion surveys or surveys of historians, JFK continues to rank higher than you might ordinarily think. Yeah, yeah, as an inspirational figure as well as for substantive things he did. Here's a kind of a related question. What do you think will ultimately be the legacy of the Kennedy family? Somebody I I talked to who had worked for all three brothers said that they were well-fed underdogs with pretty good bite. They were rich, they were wealthy, um, but they were still brought up. They were not that many generations removed from the boat. And their father and mother had filled them with talks about the discrimination against the Irish and against the Catholics. And so they had that instinctive feeling for the underdog. And it made them something more than a John Lindsay or a Nelson Rockefeller, both of whom connected with poor people and working class people. But uh, there was something special about the Kennedys. They felt, especially Bobby and then Ted, they really felt for, uh, for black people and for uh, immigrants and for the dispossessed in, in society, almost against their will, because as, as politicians, they knew this was not a winning hand. But they were underdogs at heart, and they had just enough of them, um, and I think that's what makes them special. 
here's a question that kind of relates to that. It's this question is, why do you think the Kennedys achieved such an image and legacy of progressivism despite having a status of American royalty? Well, two reasons. First of all, JFK was also the television president. I mean, his greatest single moment was beating Nixon on television. And he defined with the presidential press conferences how you could be dashing on television. So the whole television era came in with JFK and pushed him to a, a place where he was like on par with Elvis and Marilyn. Uh, I mean, he was a, a, a superhero. And so I think that's a major part of the reason. But I think Americans sensed that the Kennedys knew who they were and felt for them. Um, and Ted certainly did. And Bobby emoted as a presidential candidate in a brief five years after, after his brother died, this tough little runt bastard who ran JFK's campaign and scared all the politicians in the country turned into this amazing, sympathetic empath and won hearts. I mean, you, you still talk to politicians and um, George Stephanopoulos, I'll drop a name. You talk to George Stephanopoulos about what helped form him and made him uh, a Democrat. And he'll say, you know, Bobby. Before reading your book, I didn't have an especially positive image of Joseph Kennedy Sr. And yet his relationship with his youngest son was pretty remarkable and, and warm. I mean, it was meaningful in a way I hadn't understood before. Talk about the impact of his father. All four boys idolized dad. And dad was a great father when he was around. And they fought for his attention when he was around. And he set up this system of, you know, Joe goes first. Joe gets shot down in Europe. Jack gets promoted. Bobby comes after Jack. And Ted comes after Bobby. So they all were always struggling to measure up to dad's expectations. Expectations is a big word in Ted Kennedy's life because he was under this amazing burden of, of expectations. Who or what do you think Ted Kennedy would have considered his greatest obstacle or adversary? It's hard to say because he worked so well with everybody except maybe Jesse Helms. You can't name a, a Republican leader from the last half century that at some point Ted Kennedy did not use as a working partner. Even W. Uh, George W. Bush, who he worked so hard against the Iraq War, Teddy did, um, he worked on the No Child Left Behind Act with W and also on the Medicare drug benefit with W. And that was a great example of Ted's modus operandi was that he helped W pass this Medicare drug benefit, which was something like $500 billion a year. And then when Obama had to come a few years later and do the Affordable Care Act, and that money was already in it. Our next last question, it's actually a question I asked before, and then we got off on a diversion. Can you describe the family dynamics between the Kennedy brothers? Joe was the star. He was the golden boy. He was the oldest. Jack was right behind him, and the two of them fought all the time. There's a poignant moment where Jack comes home as the hero from PT-109, and Joe decides that he has to do something of equal bravery and equal stature and volunteers for this incredibly dangerous mission in which he's going to fly a bomber loaded with TNT into the concrete U-boat pen on the coast of France, but he's going to jump out of the plane at the last minute after he's pointed the plane, and something goes wrong and the plane explodes in midair, but there's this really sad story about Joe right before he volunteers for this mission weeping because Jack had done something in the South Pacific that surpassed him. Bobby and Ted were 
further down the line in these nine children, and Bob made himself Jack's right-hand man, the enforcer for John Kennedy. But both Bob and Ted basically lionized JFK, and then when he died, both of them were shattered. All the attention, interestingly enough, went to Bob because he was the most publicly affected. And Ted was expected to be jovial, good old Ted, and nobody really paid any attention to whatever pain he might have been feeling. And then, of course, the two of them got uh, incredibly close in the five years after JFK died, when both of them were U.S. senators. And then Bobby gets killed, and now you've got this raw, young senator forced to pick up this legacy, which by now has grown into mythical proportions. You know, and he was the jester in the family. He was never supposed to be the king. He was never supposed to wear the crown. And that's, I think, is the key to his story. Okay, here's the last question. And thank you all for submitting these really interesting questions. What senators or politicians today do you feel are the inheritors of Ted Kennedy's legacy? Is there a lion of the Senate today? Um, I think that um, the closest figure that we have is this uh, amazing woman that you wrote so gracefully about in your book, um, Nancy Pelosi, who interestingly enough, for some reason, whenever she referred to Ted Kennedy, she referred to him as senator, not the senator, but she'd be talking to her staff and she would just say, senator says we have to do this, get the bill through. Just senator, like you know, there's nobody else in the, in the Senate other than <laughs> Senator Ted. And uh, I think she's the closest. Um, the Republican Party has a lot of young people right now trying to step up. And the Democratic Party still has not, they sort of made that generational leap with Obama, but then they sort of retreated again. And so it'd be, it'd be very interesting to see if there's somebody in the, in the Senate who has the ability to do that. But Ted Kennedy was a unique person. He had the family legacy. Um, he had an amazing staff. He was there for 40 years. And he had like this 120, 130, 140 people working for him, which was 10 times more than any other senator, so that he was like this little island unto himself. And it's gonna, it would take a lot for somebody else to reach that kind of position. All right, Jack Farrell, thank you so much. And yeah, thank you for this yeah. wonderful that was bio member and author John A. Farrell speaking with fellow biographer and journalist Susan Page at a program sponsored by the Manhattan based New York Historical Society on November 15, 2022. We'd like to send a special thanks to the Society's Public Programs Director, Alexander Castle, for granting us permission to present excerpts from this interview in our series. To learn more about bio, or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.